We started a series on 1 Corinthians 6, 11, one verse, and we're talking about some aspects of that verse. And today's topic is no easier than last week's topic, which was sanctification. Today's topic is being justified. Justification. What does that mean? Gigan- I know, I'm getting like, Chris is laughing already. This is a huge, loaded word. Man, but we're going to do the best we can today. First, let's get some context. Let's read the surrounding verses around 1 Corinthians 6, 11. So we can get a feel for what St. Paul is, is dealing with here. We're not going to read the full chapter. I cut it a little shorter this week because you guys have heard it already twice. But we're still going to read a bunch for context. We're going to start at verse 8. Paul says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, your, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that stings them a little bit, because... Everyone that he's writing to will be able to find themselves somewhere on that list. And they're saying as they read this letter from Paul, oh no, the worst of all rebukes. Our spiritual father is saying none of us are going to make it. We're all these people. But the next part is key. Verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you. And they must have all breathed a sigh of relief at that were. Some were, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We talked about what he means there by washed. We talked about sanctified, and tonight we get to talk about justified. What does it mean? What is he saying when he says justified? This is one of those super biblically churchy, Christian-easy words. Nobody uses this in normal speak. So how how are you doing today? I'm feeling quite justified. Thank you. We just don't say that. You know, other translations will call this made righteous or righteousness, but what does it mean? And I've got to tell you, epic debate has been waged over the meaning of this word. And we have a couple different camps, even, it seems like there's two camps even in the Bible, and one side is yelling, you have to work for it. You have to work for justification. If you want to be justified, if you want to be made righteous, you better do some things pitchforks and machetes and loud one guy has a loudspeaker I love that like that's the worst that's the worst weapon on the whole board the loudspeaker but then there's another camp that says it's a gift you can't earn it and they're just as loud and and vocal as the other group so we have these two opposing views in scripture and if you're familiar with the debate if you grew up in church you know that Paul writes some things in the book of Romans and he says it's faith alone You are justified, whatever that means, by faith. That's it. It's not by works. It's not by stuff you do. It's just faith. But if you've gone to church, you know, your entire life, three days a week, thanks again, Mom. Appreciate that. And uh, you've heard the whole Bible preached ad nauseum, and you know there's another book in the back called James. And James seems to say the opposite. He says, hey, it's not just faith, it's also works. Even Abraham was justified by by works. Now this is a bit of a a problem, a sticky wicket, as some people would say, because Paul also uses Abraham as an example, and he says, hey, Abraham wasn't justified by works, was he? That's crazy. No, it was faith. 
So we seem to have these two biblical authors at odds. And it's created these two camps. At the end of this message, I hope to resolve that tension, among other things. But first, can we just define what in the world we're talking about with justification? What does that even mean? Here come the long quotes. Who's ready? Now I need to breathe. Because those of you who have been here a long time know that instinctively I will try to read straight through the quote without taking any breaths. And this is why I could never be in radio. I would literally die. I'd just pass out. Here we go. This is from Vine's Expository. And guess where I retrieved it, by the way? Blue Letter Bible app. Praise the Lord. Yes, I'm having an influence. Get the Blue Letter Bible app. It's the greatest thing in the world. Here we go. The legal and formal acquittal. This is what justification or made righteous means. It depends on how you translate the word. The legal and formal acquittal. Oh my goodness, Jesus, help me. The legal and formal acquittal, third time's a charm, from guilt by God as judge. The pronouncement of the sinner as righteous who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. In some tenses, indicating the constant process of justification in succession of those who believe and are justified. And in another tense, indicating the definite time at which each person, upon the exercise of faith, was justified. And in Romans 8.1, it means no condemnation. Now he's saying, hey, this same word can be used a number of different, different ways. It can mean you've been declared innocent. It can mean you're being made righteous. Or it can simply point to a moment in time where the justification happened. And it's used all three ways in Scripture. But I really want to latch on to this idea, the pronouncement of the sinner as righteous. The pronouncement of the sinner is righteous. An old preacher told me justification means God sees you as if you've never sinned. And I'll tell you, that's not a bad working definition. But let's read some more. This is an outline of biblical usage, also from the Blue Letter Bible. Amen. Thank you, God, for this. This word is used in in the Bible to render the righteous or such as to render someone righteous or such as he ought to be. To show, exhibit, or evince one to be righteous, such as he is, and wishes himself to be considered. And this this last one is really key. To declare, pronounce one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. To pronounce someone to be just or righteous. You're justified if you're not guilty, you're not condemned, you're just and righteous. Seems to make sense so far. We could just say, declare declare to be in the right, as if the judge has decided in your favor. Interesting, interesting. Here's another long quote, and this one is actually from a commentary on Galatians. Paul writes a lot about justification in Galatians, and we're going to get to the fun stuff in a minute, but we need to get what the word means down so we can understand why the people had the pitchforks and the torches and the, and the bullhorns. This verb refers to God's verdict of not guilty. Somebody say, not guilty. guilty. That is going to be our key phrase. This verb refers to God's verdict of not guilty on the day of judgment. God's final verdict has now been announced in advance for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who have been justified by the blood of Christ will be saved from God's wrath at the final judgment. God will announce publicly to the world the verdict of not guilty on the last day. Who wants that, by the way? I'll take some of that. Amen. 
God will announce it publicly to the world on the last day. Though this verdict is already, this verdict already belongs to us who are united with Christ Jesus. Not guilty. If you're justified, God has declared you not guilty. You have gone to court, guilty as sin, of sin, and the judge has said not guilty. And this is more than just an acquittal. You didn't just get off. You've been made righteous. There's a lot to this word, but not guilty is going to be our go-to phrase. Does this sound awesome? Do we want that? You know, I I saw a beer one time at a restaurant called Final Absolution. (laughs) And I thought, that's awesome. Like, it doesn't matter what else the restaurant has to offer. Who doesn't want Final Absolution? Like... Would you like some final absolution? Yes, I'll take some. I don't even drink it. Just pour it out. It doesn't matter. I want it. So let's talk about how to avoid it. How to miss it. We're going to go at this in a sideways way. If you really don't like justification, if you want to work really hard your whole life and not quite get it, I'm going to give you some tips how. Does this sound interesting? I hope so. I was trying to find a way to attack this and not make it just dry as a stick in June, man. I'll tell you. Here we go. How to miss it? Start part point one. Religion and ritual. Now there is nothing wrong with enjoying your religion or enjoying a ritual. You know, I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves. Like some people have their morning ritual prayer time with God and they do the same thing every time. And I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about thinking that religion and ritual is somehow going to make you right with God. Seeking this not guilty verdict through your religion, whatever that might be, and ritual. You're not quite going to get there. And this is biblically proven. Acts 13, 38, and 39. Paul is talking to the people that, actually David Guzik, one of my favorite pastoral commentators, he points out that these people that he's talking to in Acts 13 are probably the very same people that he's going to write the letter of Galatians to. Interestingly, they're our next verse. But let's read this one. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He's talking about Jesus. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That word freed is the Greek for justified. Now let's let's go with the not guilty definition and read it again. He's saying by him, everyone who believes is 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 declared not guilty from everything from which you could not be declared not guilty by the law of Moses. The law of Moses was their ritual. It was the things they had to do. It was the religious system that they felt like they had to devote their lives to in order to be right with God. And Paul is saying, look, you're missing it if you do that. It can't, you can't get the not guilty verdict that way. It can't free you. You have to put your faith in Jesus. Later in Galatians, he writes this. We ourselves are Jews. He's talking about his encounter with Peter. If you've read Galatians, you know that St. Paul and Peter had an epic knockdown, dragout encounter in front of the whole church. Read it about it in Galatians 2. It's kind of interesting. And this is his postscript to that. He's talking about it. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. 
The strictest religious observance will not get you a not guilty verdict. But if you want to work really hard and miss it at the end, this is a great way. <laughs> that, that floats your boat. If you like wasting time and energy, it won't get you there. That's not the way to get it. Let's talk about another way to miss it. Doing good stuff. Time out. Do good stuff. That's important. This isn't about don't go out there and do good things because that's not right. No, no, no. We're talking about how to get the not guilty verdict, right? We're talking about how to be justified. We're talking about how to get the your innocent words from God. And you're not going to get that merely by doing good stuff. But I'll tell you, this belief persists. This was common in the Bible, and it's common today. Like, if you ask people the stereotypical street evangelism question, right? If you died tonight, would you be in heaven? Hey, that's kind of a confrontational thing to ask someone, and a little macabre, actually. But most of the time, they say, well, I'm a pretty good person, right? I do good things. This, this is deeply ingrained in us, that somehow by doing good things, we're going to do enough good things. Man, the Bible deals with this issue. Let's look at Luke 18, 9 through 14. I love the intro to this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, so, jerks. <laughs> Jesus is telling this parable to holier-than-thou jerks who were snobby. There we go, it's the New Anthony version, the nav. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pause. Tax collectors back in the day were working for the man. They're working for the Roman Empire. Who's Rome? The Roman Empire had taken over Israel's land. They were basically, you know, they were the bad guy. And the tax collectors were working for the man and extorting their own people for profit. They are not well liked. They're kind of the picture of avarice and greed and spineless, weaselly types, okay? So a Pharisee, a religious somebody, and a tax collector going to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Does he have a cheesy smile when he's saying this? Oh my gosh, what a schmuck. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I just want to point out something. The Pharisee is doing good things. He's not like those other people. He's not doing those bad things. He's actually living an upright life. He's actually tithing. He's actually fasting and giving his time to God. He's doing good stuff. But he thinks by doing that, God is looking down and saying, Wow, you are, you're doing so good. You're killing it with all those good works. You're really impressing me. But trusting good actions is foolish. Because we can't impress God enough to hear not guilty. You can't do it. It's, you're going down the wrong road, so it doesn't matter if you're going down 15 miles an hour or 150 miles an hour. You will not get there. Here's another quote. One of the scariest verses in the Bible. Matthew 7, 22 to 23. 
Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we were awesome. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Hey, aren't we pretty impressive? Did you see that life I lived down there? I was killing it. Man, I was way more charismatic than all my charismatic friends. I was doing the things. Bill Johnson talked to me once. (laughs) And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not even charismatic good stuff done in God's name earns, earns, somebody say earns, earns a not guilty verdict. These people are called workers of lawlessness in spite of their awesome deeds. If you want to work really hard your whole life and be the guy that everybody likes, except for the tax collector, but this guy, they probably like these people, and still miss it, this is a great way to do it. Trust good works. We don't want to be that guy. I know it's kind of sarcastic, but I'm trying to avoid dry. Roll with me. Here's the third one, how to miss it. Actionless belief. Oh no, they're back. Ha! You do have to work for it. We were right. Okay, hold on. Wait a minute. Time out. Actionless belief is different than saying justification by works. Totally different thing. Totally different thing. Some of you are giving me the look like you have the bullhorn and the pitchforks with you right now. But I'm telling you, that is not saying justification by works. So these people are not as right as they think. That's right. You're not as right as you think. Let's look at how we can justify this. This is from Vine's Expository again. In regard to justification by works, the so-called contradiction between James and the Apostle Paul is only apparent. There's harmony in the different views of the subject. Paul has in mind Abraham's attitude towards God, his acceptance of God's word. And James, in 2.21-26, is occupied with the contrast between faith that is real and faith that is false. A faith barren and dead, which is not faith at all. They are not talking about the same thing in the same context. In fact, Paul and James both talk about both talk about the relationship between faith and works the same way and other passages in the same books that have the contradiction. Look at this. In Romans 2.13, Paul says this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be, what's that word? Justified. Justified. Oh, man. What does, he, what does he mean there? We're not going to unpack everything this verse means, but I want to make a point. Paul is saying, hearing it and knowing it in your brain isn't good enough. Hearing it and knowing it in your brain doesn't cut it for justification. You need to do something. This is Paul. Remember the justification by faith alone guy? Here he's making this point. And James will make the same point in his book. In chapter 1, verses 22 and 25. But, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Knowing it with your brain is not good enough. The faith that brings justification to both Paul and to James must be accompanied by action. It's natural. C.S. Lewis uses this analogy, if I'm allowed to use C.S. Lewis. I really like him. Some people just, they can't deal with his writing style, but I think he's great. It's me and Chris. We like like Lewis. 
he, he says it's like a pair of scissors, you know? Nobody takes a pair of scissors apart and looks at the two blades and tries to decide which one does the cutting. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's a pair of scissors, and it has two parts that work in tandem, but it's one thing, very similar. But let's look at some of these verses that cause the problems. James two eighteen to 20. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, uh, with a wink and a nudge because it's impossible, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Man. James is saying, you're trying to tell me you have justifying faith, the kind of faith that will get you a not guilty, and you do nothing? Well, as far as James is concerned, that's just the same kind of mental ascent to reality that the demons have, and they're not doing so well in the grand scheme of things. They're not going to get the not guilty. So there is not as big a contradiction, or really any contradiction, between Paul's thought and James's thought. The kind of faith that justifies must be accompanied by action. But if you want to miss it, believing it in your brain and never letting it translate to what you do is a surefire way to miss it. A faith so shallow and weak that it never results in action will not get you a not guilty from God. And notice faith is in quotation marks. Because is that really what the Bible is talking about when they talk about faith? And I would argue no. That was cheerful. How to get it. Yes, let's move on. All right. This phrase I borrowed from Brennan Manning. Any Brennan Manning fans in here? Everybody should read at least a little Brennan Manning to find out if you like him or not. But this is the title to a book that just, man, I cried. I was so impacted. It's called Ruthless Trust. Brennan Manning was an alcoholic his whole life. And he had relapse after relapse. And that's embarrassing when you're a somebody. When you're educated, when you're in ministry, when you're an author, when you're a traveling speaker, you're well-known, you have a reputation, you're drunk in the gutter, literally drunk in the gutter. That's a problem. How do you deal with that? How do you come back to God after that kind of a catastrophic fall? You just have to ruthlessly trust Him. This is how you get justified. Let's look back to our tax collector friend. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And that's Jesus saying that, so I think he knows what he's talking about. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the key. This tax collector embodies the ruthless trust that is sure to get justification from God. If you want the not guilty, if you want God to look at you and say, all this is going off the books. You're my son and my daughter and I'm proud of you. You're righteous. I'm going to give you some steps to get it. All on one page. Based on the tax collector. This tax collector isn't trying to impress anyone. He's not like the Pharisee. He doesn't care how many good things he's done. He's only aware of the bad things. And let me tell you, this came up in a discipleship track last week at my house, and this is a biblical principle that carries through right to today. God respects 
ugly but real. He respects ugly but real. He doesn't run from that. You can't be so ugly that he hides his face from that. Just you acknowledging the ugly that he already sees, he draws near to that. But he can't stand fake and pretty. He can't stand it. If you want to repulse God, act like the tax collector. Try to tell God you have it all together. Is God an idiot? God sees what's going on. Give him the ugly and the real. Can we do that? Give him the ugly and the real. Here's another one. The tax collector knows he has zero chance of actually being righteous. He beats his breast because he's only aware of his own sinfulness. That's an action of like regret and frustration and anger. He'd punish himself if he could, but he knows he can't punish himself enough. He can't fake it. He knows that he can't work hard enough to get over what he's already done. He can never be absolved. He knows it because of the person that he's been and the stuff that he's done. He only has regret to bring to the table. He's not trying to be righteous on his own. And because of that, the third one, he knows his only hope is God's mercy. He knows that's the only thing he can rely on. Look at his prayer. There is no bargaining here. There's no sense of, God, I know I extorted those hundred people, but hey, you remember that one time when I blah, 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 blah? Hey, I fast. He fasts twice a week. I do that too. I fast twice a week. None of that. No bargaining. He knows his only hope is God's mercy. And he has an honest assessment of his own guilt. God likes that. And here's the fourth one. He's humble and he's trusting. I want to hit this one at at an interesting angle because I had a realization while I was preparing this message. We know he's humble because of the conclusion. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Daniel, I thought your prophetic worship today was spot on. He didn't know about my message, but man, that was a humbling worship time. Just bow down. The king is coming. God, we surrender. That's key. The tax collector had that. He was humble, but he was also trusting. He had ruthless trust. How do we know he was trusting? He was praying, wasn't he? He was at the temple, wasn't he? He was going before God, wasn't he? Why would he do that unless he understood the character of God was the character that God said he had? Forgiving, full of loving kindness, merciful, forgiving sin. The tax collector understood the character of God better than the Pharisee. He knew his only hope was God's mercy, and he came in trust. He came with an honest assessment of who he was, but hope that God was who God said he was. And he asked for mercy, and he got it. He got it. At precisely the moment that we are willing to declare our own filthiness, guilt, and dependence on God's mercy, God declares us clean and innocent by his grace. Not a moment sooner, and we can't impress him by trying to convince him this isn't true. Somebody say amen. Amen. Thank you, I feel better. That's how to get it. It's simple, but it's humbling. You have to be willing to be humble. Let's conclude this whole series. Ruthlessly trust. Brennan Manning was in the gutter. He tells the story in the book. He refused treatment. He passed out. There were people in a hospital across the street. They waited until he was unconscious. And then once somebody's unconscious, you can do you know, what you feel necessary. So once he passed out, they drug him into the hospital. You know That is a horribly humbling experience. And 
no good for a professional minister, I've got to say. And Brendan Manning was like, I'm not giving up. I will not allow this to sidetrack me. I will ruthlessly trust that God is merciful and he's good. And he knows that I'm a punk sinner and that I'm weak and that I messed up. And I'm going to repent for real like I have so many other times before and I have no recourse but to trust that God is good and he will forgive me because that's what God says he'll do. That's ruthless trust. We have to ruthless, ruthlessly trust that we've been washed. We have to ruthlessly trust that we are forgiven, we're cleansed from anything that we've done wrong, and we are transformed. You probably will not see a physical transformation. If you do, let me know, because that's awesome. But we have to ruthlessly trust that that's happened in the Spirit. Ruthlessly trust that you have been sanctified. You have a new purpose, and you belong in God's presence. Remember the truck and the Corvette? God takes you from a dirty, nasty, old, rotten truck to a new Corvette. The Corvette isn't just new and fancy. The Corvette has a new purpose, and it belongs somewhere else. It doesn't belong in the mud anymore. It belongs on the open road going 200 miles an hour. You have a new purpose, and you belong in God's presence. Ruthlessly trust that. Ruthlessly trust that you have been justified. You are declared innocent, not guilty, righteous, free. The devil, the world, and your own memory will fight against these three realities, ruthlessly trusted. And it's all happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the end of Romans 6.11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's no other way to get it but to go to God to get it. Let's close in prayer.